Well, one of the biggest cult uh, hit shows to hit American TV screens over recent years has been the Netflix show Stranger Things. Maybe you've seen it, right? And uh, Stranger Things' success is based on combining a mix of science fiction, drama, the supernatural, and a really heavy dose of nostalgia for the 1980s. It's set in 1983 in the fictional town of Hawkins, Indiana. And the first season focuses on an investigation into the disappearance of this young boy. And it's amid these supernatural events occurring all over the town, including the appearance of a girl called Elle with psychokinetic abilities. And one of the most fascinating things about the show, which I warn you is not for the faint of heart in case you're tempted to go watch it, is the Upside Down. This is the name for an alternate dimension existing in parallel to the the human world and can be only entered through a particular gate. And it's from this world that we've taken our title for our Lenten installment of our series in Luke's Gospel. We are calling it the Upside Down. And it's not because we're going to encounter evil human predators called demogorgons, but rather because of the fact that Jesus is teaching, or his teaching is clearly at odds with the way that the world, uh, or the way of the world that he's running into. His kingdom is a place where everything's turned upside down, but for good and not for evil. Now, if you've missed the past couple of months here at Holy Cross, or perhaps you're visiting for the first time, then you've missed that we're spending this year looking exclusively at Luke's gospel. You see, our prayer for 2020 is that we will see Jesus clearly, that we'll see him for who he really is. And if there's someone who can help us do that, it is the author of this gospel, is Luke, the beloved physician. He's a follower of Jesus and an assistant to the apostle Paul. And Luke's account is a good one for us to study because unlike the other gospels, it's written particularly for people like you and me. It's written for Gentile Christians who are not living in the nation of Israel. And what we're seeing in this detailed account of Jesus' life is that, number one, the faith we have is well-founded. It is grounded in facts, historical facts. Yes, Luke cares about names and places and dates, and so he is careful to document them so that these stories can be seen to be true. And he wants us to know that his record can be trusted. And we're also seeing, number two, that perhaps we don't know this Jesus as well as we thought that we did. His life has an intentionality to it that perhaps we've not noticed before. He's a man with a clear mission and a clear focus. He's taking broken people like you and like me, and he's restoring them, and he's transforming them into people who can do incredible things for his kingdom's sake. So let's turn to our gospel reading for today. You can find it on the insert inside your announcement sheet, and let's see what we can learn from God's word. It's worth noting today that the context of our story is not just a time or a place. You know, usually we talk about the context each week because that's important to help us. And typically I talk about the time and the place that this is happening. But this week, I want us to see that it's also within two key themes that Luke is laying out for us, that he's actually weaving together. The first of these themes is the authority of Jesus. Now, Luke's been revealing Jesus' authority through each of these stories that we've heard so far in this series. He's been showing us that Jesus isn't just a good teacher or a wise prophet or actually a false messiah or even a con man. No, he is God himself 
We've seen it in the prophecies that his birth fulfilled. We've seen it in his baptism. We've seen it when the Holy Spirit descends and the Father says, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We've seen it in his ability to overcome the temptation of the devil where Adam failed. We've seen it in his ability to teach with authority and to cast out demons. We've also seen it in his supernatural ability to heal people from those with fevers to those with leprosy to those even who can't walk. And we've seen it in his command over nature itself, showing fishermen how to catch incredible amounts of fish in the wrong place at the wrong time. And of course, we've seen it in his power to forgive sin and even the worst of sinners. Yet Luke's showing us how Jesus is revealing his authority as the third person of the Trinity, the Son of God. Now, the second theme, which we're going to focus on more today, that's weaving in and out of this theme of authority, but that's connected to it, is the theme of mercy. You see, Jesus, since he stood up in his hometown of Nazareth and gave his vision statement for his life, or what Kent Hughes calls his manifesto of mercy, has been living this out. He's been putting it into practice. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Once he's made this declaration of mercy, it's then followed by acts of mercy. Jesus, first of all, he immediately heals a demonized man in Capernaum. And that same night, he tenderly lays his hand on each individual who comes to him for healing. After calling Peter, James, and John, he encounters a man covered with leprosy, and he astonishes the onlookers by compassionately placing his hand on the man's leprous body, something that no one in their right mind would have done, but healing him. Next, he heals a paralytic, mercifully forgiving his sins, though he didn't ask for that. Then comes Levi's banquet, a feast of mercy, because there the sinless Son of God sits down with some of the worst of sinners. And at that feast... In Matthew's version of this same story, in answer to the Pharisees' questioning about his associating with sinners and why he would do that, he reminds them of an Old Testament passage from Hosea chapter 6. He says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy was at the heart of Jesus' ministry. And as, as he's God, we shouldn't be surprised about this. You know, the Old Testament, where people often read God as a harsh and unkind judge, is actually full of God's mercy. Let me give you a few passages to back this up. For instance, Hosea 6, which we just read, in its entirety, it reads like this. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea's message from God to the Jews was that sacrifices and burnt offerings in themselves held no weight with God. What pleased God was a heart that was devoted to him and a life characterized by loving mercy, which is actually inseparable from real faith. Through Amos, another 8th century BC prophet to the Jews, God's even more explicit. He says this, For I know how many are your transgressions. He's speaking to the Israelites. And how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. 
I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Must have been terrifying to hear those words, right? You see, religious observance doesn't look out for the plight, uh, religious observance that doesn't look out for the plight of the needy is unacceptable to God. And then there's Micah, who's a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. And he gives this truth its most famous expression, saying, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's Micah 6.8. It's one worth memorizing. Indisputably, then, mercy is a sure sign of knowing God and living a life that pleases him. And throughout the Old Testament, God's revealed as patient. He's slow to anger, full of love and mercy. Yes, he does bring judgment, but then so will Jesus. People often forget that. As Jesus himself says in John's gospel, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And then he says, and I can do, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. See, judgment is not counter to mercy, but the two go hand in hand. So it's against this backdrop of God's authority and his mercy that we encounter today's gospel reading. I know that's a long introduction, but it's worth knowing these things before we get there. Keep them in mind as we try to understand what Jesus is doing and what he's saying here. And what we have in our gospel story is a tale of two Sabbaths, but each revealing the same thing. In verses 1 through 5, the setting is a grain field. And the Pharisees who we encountered last week, well, again, they're watching Jesus closely. Remember, the Pharisees are the unofficial religious leaders of the day. There's about 6,000 of them throughout Israel at that time. And they have a tendency to add burdensome rules to God's law. Lots and lots of them. Well, they see Jesus' disciples breaking one of these rules. And note that it's actually one of their own laws. You know, in the Ten Commandments, we do see God prohibit working on the Sabbath. But there's nothing about what the disciples are doing here. As one commentator clarifies, he says, Over time, the Jewish leaders had developed a series of 39 clarifications of work, exotic legalisms, with each category capable of endless subdivision. The Mishnah explicitly listed as three of its 39 categories, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. According to these laws, Jesus' disciples reaped when they plucked some heads of grain, and they threshed and winnowed when they rubbed them in their hands. And when they began to eat the kernels, they actually prepared food on the Sabbath, according to the rules of the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees are outraged about this. And we read in verse 2, they say, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And they think they've caught Jesus in this flagrant breaking of divine law. And you can almost see this flush of satisfaction on their pious faces. But Jesus knows the scriptures even better than they do. And so he reminds them of a story in the Old Testament where mercy triumphs over legalism. It says in verses 3 and 4, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? That's King David, defeater of Goliath. He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of David and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not, sorry, the house of God, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. 
in the incident that Jesus is referring to, David's a desperate, famished refugee. He's actually fleeing from the wrath of King Saul, who's trying to kill him. And his soldiers are starving. And so he goes to the tabernacle in Nob, and he begs the chief priest Ahimelech for bread. Well, Ahimelech replies that there's none except for the consecrated bread of the presence that's been removed from sacred display. And the bread of the presence consisted of 12 loaves of unleavened bread that were arranged in two rows of six on a table of gold in the tabernacle. And every seven days, they were changed out. It was referred to as the bread of the presence, literally the bread of the face, because it was placed in the presence of holy God. It was ceremonially holy and could only be eaten by the priests at the end of its seven-day display. And so Ahimelech asks if David and his men are ceremonially clean. And David answers, yes, and he's given the bread. And David then dashes off with the bread, and he and his men, they enjoy a feast on this bread. Well, Ahimelech reveals to us the divine principle that human need must never be subjected to cold legalism. You know, the equivalent today might be if we had communion together, okay? And a starving, thirsty person comes into the church just as we're finishing up. They say, I'm so hungry and thirsty. Do you have anything to eat? And we have some leftover bread and wine, which normally I have to scarf down at the end, right? And I say to him, here you go. Take the bread and take the wine. Off you go. You know, a part of us might be horrified at that idea, right? Just think, oh, that's the holy bread and that's the blood of Jesus, right? But it is, in essence, what Ahimelech is doing. And what Jesus is insinuating is the right thing to do in such a circumstance. Need triumphs legalism. And then Jesus suggests something even more incredible, that he's God. In verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Once again, he's revealing his authority. We see these themes interweaving. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God himself. And he is therefore, oh, he was there before the Sabbath itself even existed. We heard that passage read from Genesis. Jesus was there as the world was being made. He's therefore the maker of rest and restoration itself, something that Sabbath points to. And so he knows what is right to do on the Sabbath. Well, Luke's made his point, but he wants to make it even more convincingly. So he adds another story of another dramatic Sabbath clash. In verses 6 and 7, we read this. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. You know, sadly, this story reveals just how truly lost the Pharisees are. There seemed to be some hope last week, didn't we, when we encountered them. Remember how they were all filled with awe when Jesus heals the paralytic. It says all of them. But now it's clear that they are more concerned about their own rules and their own position in society than they are about the love of God that their religion is supposed to reveal. So again, they're watching Jesus closely, and this time they're watching to see if he'll heal someone on the Sabbath. And again, they've added to God's law. This time the Mishnah says, it's only if someone's life is in danger that you are allowed to help them on the Sabbath. And so a man with a crippled hand doesn't count. As one commentator puts it, there is outrageous irony here as determined religious men sinisterly watch Jesus every move to see if he will show kindness and heal the man so they can charge Jesus with sin. 
These Pharisees were utterly unmerciful and utterly lost. Well, you can sense Jesus' growing frustration as this happens with these people who just don't understand God's love and mercy, his love and mercy. In verse 8, we read, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Jesus knows their terrible thoughts. And to highlight just how terrible they are, he decides to have mercy on this man and heal him. But right before he does, he gives them one more chance to understand. This is God's grace in action over and over again, his patience. As we read in the Old Testament again, Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So he asks them in verse 9, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Then looking at each and every one of them in the eye, he waits for a response. Perhaps he's hoping that just one of them will break and they'll say, mercy is the better way, Lord. But it doesn't happen. Verse 10, after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Getting no response, he gives up, and he just does the right thing and heals this man. And how do the Pharisees respond? Well, their hearts are hard. And so we read in verse 11, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Greek word used here for fury can be translated as madness. And that sums up well what's going on because this is madness. They are blind to their own foolishness. The Pharisees aren't lovers of God. They are spiritual felons. They are massive breakers of the law, even sons of Satan, as Jesus puts it in John chapter 8. As we come to a close, please hear me correctly. What I'm not saying here is that we shouldn't set apart one day each week to rest from our work and to be restored for the week ahead. We need this more than ever, friends. And it reminds us that we're not God and that even if we stop for a day, things still go on without us. We are not in control. He is. But as Jesus reveals, it needs to be kept in the right spirit. For example, if we can't heal or show compassion on the Sabbath, then it's not a true Sabbath. It's just become religion for religion's sake. No, as Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. Therefore, in taking Sabbath rest or any form of rest, we need to remember that people matter more than things or rules. And the same is true for the rest of the week too. You see, true faith produces mercy. True faith produces mercy. It's no surprise that the abolitionist movement was rooted in evangelical Christianity, led by Christians such as William Wilberforce. The same is true for the roots of modern healthcare, schooling, and social concern with the likes of Lord Shaftesbury and William Booth. Likewise, the elevation of women and the protection and care of children sprang from the concern of followers of Jesus Christ. True Christians are compassionate to those in need, whether it's the poor or the orphan the immigrant, the cultural outcasts, the mentally unstable, the disabled, the sick, alcoholics, drug addicts, prisoners, victims of abuse, etc., etc. And Christians also care about sinners. 
They witness to them about the love of Jesus Christ and they win them to him because they long for God's mercy to come to them. You know, it's why we focus so much on life groups here at Holy Cross. We want to raise up people who disciple others and share the gospel. And within our groups, it's why we have a focus on reaching out to others, both by inviting them in to hear the gospel and through acts of mercy. You know, we have groups that go into prisons, groups that care for the elderly in homes such as Summit Place, just over there, groups that serve our neighbors at Seven Farms Apartments, groups that run blood drives, groups that help widows and orphans. It's why we run foster care programs to train parents to help children in deep need, and it's why we collect food for the poor. Dynamic mercy in all its dimensions is nothing less than the life of Christ in us. And such a life is costly. It's inconvenient. It raises tension. It brings conflict. It is humbling. It is countercultural or upside down. But it's our calling. Because God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Who is God calling you to be merciful towards in this community? Perhaps giving up your legalism or your free time, or your money, perhaps turning your life upside down, but in doing so, right side up. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, said Jesus. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come move in our hearts. As we study this passage, I am convicted of my own sin, Lord God, and challenged in the places where I am failing to show mercy. Lord, would you forgive me of that? And each person in this room who feels the same way, would you forgive us and would you restore us? And would you by your spirit come and enable us to show mercy where we feel too tired to show mercy? To show mercy where we feel like we just can't do it one more time. To be known as a people of mercy and a place where your love is exhibited and your mercy is shown. Lord God, we don't just want to be people who go through the religious rites and the religious duties that we're supposed to follow. We want to be people who have an impact for your kingdom's sake that others might come to know the love of Jesus Christ. So help us to do it this day and every day in word and deed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.